Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Britain has announced that masks will be mandatory in public, and President Donald Trump has even been seen sporting one. But how exactly does COVID-19 spread? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, the pandemic has exposed weaknesses in healthcare systems. So what's the fix? COVID has to be a turning point for American healthcare. There's so many lessons that we should be learning. And the illuminating technology helping archaeologists reveal hidden secrets. It's quite exciting. So we're rewriting the, the archaeology of the Stonehenge landscape. But first, the World Health Organization has issued new guidance on the spread of COVID-19. We have been talking about the possibility of airborne transmission and aerosol transmission as one of the modes of of transmission of COVID-19. We're also looking at the possible role of airborne transmission in other settings, particularly closed settings where you have poor ventilation. This comes after more than 200 scientists joined together to call on national and international bodies to recognize the potential for the virus to be contracted through the air. Airborne transmission is when we inhale the virus from the air and in consequence we are infected. Lydia Moroska is the director of the International Laboratory for Air Quality and Health at the Queensland University of Technology. She is also the co-author of the paper signed by the 200 scientists. When we breathe, when we speak, when we uh, sink or cough, we exhale aerosols of different sizes, ranging from below one micrometer to over one millimeter. Those which are very big, they fall to the ground very quickly, taken down by the gravity. Those which are small stay in the air. I use the term aerosol. There's another term often used, which is droplet. Now, aerosols are particles which are solid and liquid. Droplet is a liquid particle, liquid aerosol. So it is basically the same, but slightly different terminology. Last week, you published a strong call to action about the possible spread of COVID-19 through the air. How big a role do you think that airborne transmission plays in the spread of coronavirus? Well, it depends where. In places where ventilation is not sufficient, when there are enough people, where there is possibility of inhaling enough virus from the air, this could be the dominating factor. Of course, if the conditions are like outdoors, where there's a lot of dilution of the virus, then the problem is much less significant or not significant at all. So it depends, but considering that we are living in a crowded, urbanized world, where there are plenty of conditions for inhaling the virus exhaled by other people, this is in many cases the most significant mode of transmission. 
What's the implication of that? What does it mean for something like air conditioning? Well, air conditioning means many different things. In the first instance, means ventilation. It also means cooling and heating the air, possibly also cleaning uh, if the filtration system is installed in the buildings. What it means is that we need to ensure that the ventilation in the indoors we share with others means that enough air exchange rates per hour or per person to ensure that the virus is removed from the air. We need to ensure that the air is not flowing between people from one person to another not to spread the virus. And more broadly, for reopening plans, this seems to be a very critical factor in how we reopen. Indeed it is. So far, when we hear about different businesses reopening, we hear about disinfecting the places, disinfecting surfaces, let's say in a restaurant. We are provided with a disinfectant to clean our hands. However, I've never so far heard from any news anywhere in the world that a business increased ventilation to ensure efficient removal of the virus from the air. So this is one critical measure which we need to add to our package of interventions. How do you disinfect the air? You disinfect the air if you cannot supply fresh air. Disinfection would be disinfecting the air when it goes through the filters by means, for example, UV radiation, which kills any pathogens. So this is one of the measures of disinfecting the air. UV radiation can also be used as standalone lamps. Now, the risks of airborne transmission was highlighted by the case of a choir rehearsal near Seattle, where the singers followed all the known guidelines. They sanitized their hands. They didn't give hugs or handshakes. But still around 30 people got COVID-19 and two of them died. This sounds like a huge problem. Well, we've been very puzzled what happened there. And the first question was, did they use the measures recommended like social distancing and so on? Once we were assured that, yes, this was happening, then the next question is, can we somehow look at the conditions there and model this? So I'm a co-author of two papers, which are now under review, which demonstrated using retrospective modeling that airborne transmission was the most likely and the most logical uh, explanation to what happened there. Now, there's also the example of a restaurant in Guangzhou, China, where the outbreak affected diners from three separate families sitting in completely different areas of the restaurant. My colleague studied the outbreak in the Guangzhou restaurant, and again, they looked in detail at the conditions there, at the flow direction, flow speed, also at the video recording to check whether there was a possibility of direct contact between people, which they say was not there. So as much as possible, we collected the data and we used scientific methods to prove we can retrospectively do this, that this was airborne transmission as an explanation. Now, since your public call to action, the World Health Organization has changed its language to recognize the fact that airborne transmission cannot be ruled out, which is a lukewarm way of saying it happens. So what can scientists do to find out whether there is definitely airborne transmission? Do we have to run an experiment? A perfect study will never happen. We will never expose healthy people to the virus in the air and then see whether they are infected. This would be ultimate proof. Such study will not be conducted because nobody will approve an ethical aspect of these studies. And on the other hand, when outbreaks occur, there are no researchers 
to test all the elements of the air, measure the virus there, because we never know that it would occur. Okay, so we can't do experiments ethically, but what we need to do is rely on observational data. That's correct. We rely on observational data from many different environments, many different places, and many different angles. This could be, for example, doing retrospective modeling study like the choir outbreak, and many different other elements which put together build a picture of airborne transmission. Now, you first raised the possibility of this in April. What's changed to make the WHO alter its stance now? The point is that scientists like myself who study different elements of respiratory infection transmission, we knew this for a long, long time, that airborne transmission is an important mode of transmission of such infections. We've been trying to bring this to the attention of the world for a long time, but it's been largely ignored. So what happened since April? Of course, there have been more studies adding to the jigsaw puzzle to show what's happening. Why didn't the world listen to what you had to say earlier? This is a very good question. And there are many incidents in the history of humanity that the world doesn't listen to what scientists say. And this was the reason why we thought that as a big body of scientists, we have to speak out loudly. So what should public health bodies and governments do to respond? And what can people do? Wearing of masks, is that enough? Wearing of masks is one element of this, and that's obviously something which uh, we can do individually and we should do individually in places where infection transmission uh, is a risk. And this is something which the relevant bodies should mandate uh, if necessary. But this is one responsibility is put on individuals. But really the responsibility here is on government, state or any relevant bodies to mandate that the interiors are sufficiently ventilated to remove the virus from the air. Right now, such recommendations, such guidelines or standards don't exist basically in any countries. Of course, there are ventilation standards, and I think every country has such or every organization, but ventilation in general, for example, to remove carbon dioxide, which we exhale, are not sufficient or not fully relevant to removing the virus from the air. So much more effort needs to be put into this to quantify the problem and then to put the right recommendations in place. But this is the role of uh, national, international bodies, public health, not just individuals. Lydia Maroska, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the program. And for more on the coronavirus, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. In the science and technology section this week, there is a fascinating story about a new material that helps chips pack in more miniature circuits called white graphene. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. Next. Healthcare systems around the world have been stretched by the pandemic, but it's also revealed many long-term problems. Dr. Vivian Lee is a physician and the president of Health Platforms at Verily, which is a part of Google's parent company, Alphabet. She's written a book called The Long Fix, with solutions for solving America's healthcare crisis. Dr. Lee, welcome to Babbage. Wonderful to be with you. Now, you've experienced America's healthcare system from many angles, as a practitioner, as a teacher, as a business person, and even as a patient. 
So, Dr. Lee, what is your diagnosis? The fundamental problem in American healthcare is the business model. The idea of having healthcare function as a business is driven by this notion, I think, of, of much of American society of capitalism really fueling competition and innovation. And we see that in many aspects of healthcare. We are very fortunate in the U.S., for example, to be the beneficiaries of enormous amount of innovation in the pharmaceutical, medical device, and so on. I think there are many advantages. The problem with having our healthcare system designed as a fee-for-service model, where we're really rewarding people just for doing things to patients, is that in my view, we're, we're flying into the headwinds of capitalism. Instead of motivating healthcare systems and pharmaceutical companies and, and others in the healthcare ecosystem to innovate towards better health, we're simply incentivizing them to innovate towards more action and often more waste. Now, everybody wants a quick fix. And you as an author have disastrously titled your book, The Long Fix. <laughs> Nobody wants a long fix, but maybe that's what's required presumably, because you chose the title in American healthcare, what is the long fix? The long fix is really a sign to everyone that it is not a quick fix, but it, there is a fix at the end. And the overall theme of the book is to highlight examples of where those fixes are already happening in the country. For example, a band of five major employers in Seattle like Starbucks and Costco and Nordstrom's, they all came together. They are paying for the health care of their employees. Remember, about half of all Americans receive their health care through their employers. And so those five employers got together and demanded of the health care system that was providing care to their employees that they improve performance and deliver better value to them. They said, we need these employees seen immediately. We need 100% customer satisfaction. We need only what works. We need them to return to work. And then we need consistent and transparent pricing. When they made those demands, they were really demanding value as opposed to a fee-for-service model. They got it. And in turn, the healthcare system also improved and became one of those centers of excellence for other major employers. So there's some fantastic examples of solutions. We just need to scale those. And that's what the long fix is all about. Do you really want to start from where you are with taking American healthcare and just sort of ameliorating it versus looking around the world, finding a model that might be more suitable for the needs of an older 21st century population? If we had it all to do again, I think very few of us would advocate for the system that we have now in the U.S., one of the models that I think could work or could offer many lessons for us is Swiss model. There is a balance of both private and public sector components of healthcare. There is universal healthcare. So everybody is required to have health insurance. There is a basic health insurance model for all citizens that all private insurers have to offer. If you're in that plan, the government or the insurance companies pay a fixed amount for the services that are provided by the hospitals and the doctors. Then on top of that, the private insurers can compete to offer additional services, can offer private rooms, can offer additional kinds of amenities in care. And there can be more of an American-style approach. Now, 
when you were writing the book, of course, you had no idea that we were going to undergo a pandemic. How has American healthcare performed, its strengths and its weaknesses? We've seen these physicians and nurses and pharmacists and therapists across the country in these intensive care units and emergency rooms really perform at heroic levels. Also, their ability to learn and to understand and identify ways in which we can treat patients with a disease that we never really managed before. And we're seeing much higher survival rates now. On the other hand, we've also seen an incredible shortcoming in terms of our public health infrastructure, our ability to measure and monitor and test and track this infectious disease across the country. And we've also seen the reliance on a fee-for-service healthcare model means that we have a, a system that's not very resilient or robust. We had to lay off a million and a half healthcare workers in April, for example. And then finally, digital health and telehealth have both been opportunities that we could have been developing much more aggressively in this country over the last couple of decades, but because of various barriers, including resistance to change and payment issues, have not been as well developed. So we've seen a rapid adoption of telehealth. Digital solutions are just coming, and I think that we will see that they will accelerate over the next several months and years. And I think that will, in the long term, hopefully be a real benefit to society. Now, do you think, looking back, that COVID is going to be a turning point for American healthcare? COVID has to be a turning point for American healthcare. There's so many lessons that we should be learning, and those lessons should be translating into changes in health policy and changes in the behavior of our health systems and even all of us as individuals and as patients. I think the challenge will be whether there is the right mechanism for translating the lessons into actual change. We saw a massive unleashing of telehealth in the last couple of months Because of the fee-for-service model of care, it led to probably some overutilization of telehealth because in a fee-for-service model, if every time you pick up the phone and talk to the patient, you get reimbursed, then you're tempted to potentially overuse that just in the same way we tend to overuse other pieces of medicine. So in the process of that transformation of introducing telehealth and relaxing some of the restrictions and regulations, We had an opportunity, and I think we still have that opportunity now, to rethink and make the right investments and modify the way in which we run the business of healthcare. Not sure I'm seeing it fully realized right now, but I'm still hopeful and optimistic that there are opportunities going forward. I'm hopeful and optimistic too. Dr. Vivian Lee, thank you very much. Thank you so much. In a moment, the new technology lighting up Archaeology. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 
And finally, for more than 4,000 years, Stonehenge has stood on Salisbury Plain in southern Britain. It's inspired everyone, from the pre-Raphaelites to my favorite rock band, Spinal Tap. Despite being there all this time, archaeologists continue to make surprising discoveries about the landscape, thanks to exciting new technologies in their toolbox. But it's not just shovels, trowels and brushes anymore. Paul Markley is our innovation editor. Now archaeologists use tools like magnetometers, which measure anomalies in the ground where things have been disturbed, or carbon dating, which can establish a date on organic samples. But one of the most exciting new technologies is something called optically stimulated luminescence, or OSL. How does OSL work? What it does, it looks at two of the most common minerals in the crust of the Earth, which are quartz and feldspar, and these are sort of crystal-like uh, families of uh, materials. And when these things are buried, electrons start to accumulate in the defects in their crystal structures. And a bit like a rechargeable battery, this charges them up. Now, they're getting these electrons from very low levels of environmental radiation that exists in the ground. And when you get the minerals out, re-expose them to the outside world and light, the electrons are stimulated and they escape their traps and they release a photon of light. And now as the intensity of that light, which is luminescence, is directly proportional to the amount of environmental radiation they've absorbed while they've been buried in the ground, that can be measured. And so you can work out when things were last exposed to sunlight. So how does that differ from other technologies? Radiocarbon dating, for instance, would actually put a, a date on something. So you might say, ah, this dates from sort of 2500 BC. Whereas with this technique, you wouldn't say that, but you could say, well, this was buried a thousand years ago, or this was buried 500 years ago. It doesn't tell you how old it is, but it gives you some context about how the ground was used. Now, you put those two things together, say the radiocarbon date of something you got out of the ground, and using OSL to say, well, when was that ground last disturbed and the things in it buried, and you start to get a much bigger picture. Things make more sense. So how is this being used in the field? This was done um, for a big discovery near Stonehenge, where the remains of a huge circle of deep pits were identified by magnetometry. And the archaeologists, they dug down to where these pits existed and took samples of earth and then searched through them. They found some organic material which they used radiocarbon dating on, but the, the dates were kind of all over the shop, so they needed to sort of put them into some kind of context. And so that's where they used OSL. I spoke to Tim Kinnaird, a geologist at the University of St Andrews, who tested some of the samples from the site. It's quite exciting, so rewriting the the archaeology of the Stonehenge landscape. Associated with Stonehenge, there's another henge called Darlington Walls. It's about 500 metres of ditches and banks. And what our recent discovery has shown is a series of massive pits. Uh, so these are 10 metres in diameter with a depth of at least 5 metres that surround that henge, enclosing a space of about three kilometres squared. So it's a very impressive space in the landscape. So it's important to date these pits. And we can do that by radiocarbon, which is your conventional approach. But the distribution and ages are quite complex and it's hard to um, form a chronology for the site based on that. So what we can do with OSL 
is we can contextualise the sediments in which the radiocarbon dates are contained and then we can be precise in assigning ages to the different infills to these pits. So what are the benefits of using this over some of the other techniques? Wherever there's sediment, there's the, the ability to date that. So we can start to write narratives from the soil and we can start talking about depositional processes, how the sediment came to be there, how it's deposited, was it blown in, was it washed in? We can talk about the rate of deposition. So in terms of the pits at Durrington, we can start to form stories on how that the sediment came to be within those pits. For one of them, we can say that the material was rapidly deposited. And for another, we can say that that pit was infilled slowly. What are we learning from this technology? What's new? Something that's interesting that's come out of this work is how the pits relate to the henge itself. So we know from mapping out the distribution of the pits that they seem to incorporate an earlier prehistoric monument that was on the site, which is the Lark Hill Causewayed Enclosure. And we know that that feature was built about 1,500 years before the Henge at Durrington. But what's interesting is the distance between the Henge and that earlier structure, which is 800 metres, seems to have guided the placement of the shafts around Durrington, because they are all about 800 metres from the, the centre of focus, which is the Henge. And this is important because to map such a distance out from the Henge back in Neolithic times, it requires them to have some, some type of counting or tally system. So they must have been walking out from the Henge a known distance to sink these shafts. That's interesting. We can start to talk about how the, the monuments constructed, but to interpret more fully, we need the chronology, which is where OSL came in. So Paul, Tim explained how OSL is being used at the Stonehenge site, but what about elsewhere? In what other ways is OSL providing illuminating answers? It was used recently in Turkey to analyse an ancient olive tree. Now, a date of a tree can normally be determined by counting its growth rings, but when trees are particularly ancient, the centre of the tree tends to rot away, so you can't really do that very reliably. Anyway, what the researchers in Turkey did was they dug down near the roots very carefully found some quartz and feldspar in the soil and then worked out using OSL when this was last exposed to light. And that revealed that this tree was probably planted about 3,000 years ago. And they think it was done by early Greeks who had come to get a taste for olive oil, which had been imported from other regions. They were keen to plant trees to produce their own olive oil. Paul Markley, thank you for your enlightening answers. Thank you, Ken. And our thanks to Tim Kinnaird. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.